What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? I'm Jeff Fennell, and this is Sports 360. Today, we have noted economist Ev Ehrlich on the podcast. Ev has spent many years advising the players' associations in baseball, hockey, and soccer on the ins and outs of sports industry economics. Ev joins us today to talk about the state of economics in sports, where things stand, and where things are going. And he does it in a style that is all his own. We have an enlightening discussion on tap, and we're about to get going. So stay with us on Sports 360. Well, I'm pleased today to have with me on on the podcast uh, Ev Early. Uh, I don't know Ev if I need to call you Doctor Ev Early, uh, an economist who has done a lot of interesting things in sports, uh, and we just want to talk a, a little bit about that today. So, Ev, how how are you doing? I'm doing real well, and I'm glad to be here. Good, good. Yeah, I had to, you know, I, I was reading your bio recently and I saw it said Dr. Ev early. Anybody call you Dr. Ev? Dr. Ev, no. But uh, listen, people have called me worse. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure they've called you better, too. There um, you go. You, you know what, Ev, I will tell you this. Um, you know, I um when when I was thinking about uh, having this conversation with you, I, I'll be honest. I had a, a sort of a mixture of expectation because I think you know you're going to have some really interesting things to share, uh, but also some trepidation. And the trepidation was, you know, there's a lot of jokes about lawyers, right? Um, uh-huh. You you probably told your share of lawyer jokes over the years, yes, but one of the things that uh, they often say about those who choose the legal profession is they choose it because they can't do math. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't believe that's true. Right. I was an engineering major uh, when I first started out in college, but um, even if I can do a little bit of math, I can't do the math like you can do the math. Ev. I mean, you are, you, you've done some great things in terms of, you know, the, uh, the economics and being able to, to, to look at and analyze numbers. And so I want to be able to get into that, and especially as it pertains to sports. Um, and when, when did you and I first meet? I, I was trying to pinpoint it. I think it was in the early 2000s, maybe? Yes, it would. Uh, it was in 2004, which was the first executive board of the Baseball Players Association that I attended. Uh, and I remember looking at you and thinking, who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> I say, well, the cat's not a player, and uh, I don't know him yet, but they might have people tucked around here that I haven't figured out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, so it was early 2000, 2004. But, I mean, you you started out, you didn't start out working in sports, right? I mean, um I know you've done you, you you've been involved in industry and politics uh in and in addition to sports. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that in terms of how you got started and then how it was that you transitioned into sports? All right, there you go. Um 
Well, you know, I I was living the life of an economist. I uh, I kind of slept my way to the middle, and I'd worked. Uh, I taught for a little bit at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. I worked in the office of Congressman John Conyers. I worked at the Congressional Budget Office. I then became a corporate executive at Unisys, and somewhere along the way, and so I was doing that, and I wasn't thinking about sports. I grew up in New York in the 50s, so baseball was religion, and uh, I was, you know, always uh, really focused on baseball, Um, and when stuff was happening like Messerschmitt and McNally, it was great. It combined the two things I was most interested in, baseball and the struggle of the working class, you know? Oh, um, in 90 or 91, a mutual friend told me to go see his buddy, Bob Gilhooley, who was at the time uh, with his partner, Jim Bronner, a a path-blazing agent. Uh, And I got the chance to meet him during a layover on a flight in Chicago, went out to his office. We spent a couple of hours together. And we went nuts. We ended up talking about how you would apply portfolio theory to roster construction Mm. and stuff like that. And a couple days later, I got a call from the mother of us all, Lauren Rich, Mm. over at the ballplayers. And uh, she said, I just got a call from Bob Gilhooley. He says, I need to meet you right away. And suddenly I was in New York and I met with Lauren and she took me in to meet Don Fear. And we began a kind of on-again, off-again relationship. Uh, in During the 94 strike, I was the Undersecretary of Commerce in the Clinton administration. So both Don Fear and I wanted to keep our hands clean about what I was doing. Uh, but when I left the administration, I sort of began a more involved relationship with the players. In 2004, I sort of came on full-time, part-time, and uh, have done that in some form ever since. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And, you know, you often hear about, sometimes even with lawyers and, you know, you're an economist and people who were making their living in other ways of how they got into sports. And it was some either a chance meeting or, you know, a meeting that was set up and one thing led to another. And certainly that seems to be the case with you. So. But once you got on board, Ev, I mean, how would you summarize, and it may be difficult to do this, but, you know, how would you summarize the work that, you know, that you performed for the MLBPA? All right. Well, first, let me pick up on something you said, because it's exactly what I tell folks when they ask me this question. How do you get into sports? I say, well, unless you're willing to be the assistant marketing guy in the minor leagues, meaning you boil the hot dogs, go get good at something else and then come in. Uh, yeah. So there's, you know, for the folks who are listening for that point, I think that's true. Yeah, and but, that, can I if I just add yeah. to that, because you're right. I mean, even for, for me as a lawyer, that was part of my experience. I mean, I interned at the PA back in 95, 96, my last year mm-hmm. of law school. But, you know, Gene Orsa, he, he says, look, we don't hire right out of law school. He said, go learn to be a lawyer, you know. And so, you know, I went out and I worked at the board for a year. And then I was at the AFL-CIO for, for three years and then got the opportunity to come back. 
Um, so it was sort of the same thing, right? Go be good at something yeah. else. And then, and then maybe, you know, you can find your way into the sports world. Bring something to the table. I mean, the only way to make it work the other way is to have like the last name McPhail. That's <laughs> right. about it, you know, but so, all right. So, you know, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, in my first conversations, uh, with Don Fear and with the union, it uh, the issue really was uh, how well are the clubs doing? How do you measure their success? Uh, what's sort of the pulse of the industry? Uh, but remember, in some ways, I was like the guy who landed on Mars and was learning about a whole new world. I knew how to study an industry but I didn't know about the industry. Mm. And uh, that's been a lot of the last quarter century. And over time, that mission has evolved to uh, how's the industry changing? Where are the fissures or the divisions within it that uh, are something that the union wants to explore? What are the major influences that are going to drive it? How uh, is the market for player talent evolving? Uh, and as my understanding of the of the industry has grown, uh, and right now I think uh, that it's as good as it can be if you're not you or lawyers who have been involved in it their whole <laughs> careers. Uh, you know the the way to apply economic thinking has grown along with it. Yeah, and one of the things you mentioned about um, the way you evaluate players, I mean, certainly we've seen some changes there um, in recent years. Uh, there was a time when all you had to do was look at the back of the bubblegum card, you know, and right. you had certain stats, they were core stats, and that's what you looked at. And, um, you know, that certainly has changed. But what what are some of the other changes that you've seen, whether in, in economics or otherwise, in the industry since since you started? Certainly, the amount of money has changed. Um, but you know, are there any other things that, you know, the biggest changes that you've seen in, in, in the industry? Well, look, the money certainly has changed. Uh, and right now, the driving force behind the money, that sports is an internet play, uh, is very different. But that's, uh, that's simply the most recent chapter of a longer book, because when, uh, when I first started thinking about baseball, and I'm talking about, you know, just as a, as a guy in the 70s, the 80s maybe, um, the owners were quote-unquote sportsmen who were like the Galbraith family in Pittsburgh who just thought it was cool to have a baseball team or they were beer merchants or used car dealers like Bud Selig, who were somewhat civic-minded, uh, but, you know, who uh, were, uh, were there because owning a baseball team was cool. Uh, and they were, I mean, in a sense, they looked, like, they looked like the Johns in a police raid, you know, just a <laughs> bunch of old, puffy guys. Hmm. Right. Who uh, thought that it was fun to have baseball and so on. The economics changed, uh, partly driven by Steinbrenner, who 
uh, he and Finley uh, were the two owners who had I mean, a pocket full of thought about what you could do with baseball, and neither of them had the personality that made it easy for them to make their point. Um, but a wave of new owners came in who saw baseball as a growth proposition, uh, and uh, they turned into guys uh, who come out of hedge funds or other successful businesses who uh, saw baseball as a money-making opportunity, and they fueled the long-term wave of growth that uh, I think went up through to 2008 and the recession in that year. Uh, and now uh, the, uh, we're seeing the same kind of uh, more technically-minded and savvy ownership but the economics have changed uh, because of the Internet and these massive inflations and in franchise values. Uh, so the name of the game has changed. It's less important now to make an operating profit than it is to show revenue growth because that's what the market for franchises responds to. Uh, there's a... There's a bit of a bubble here. Uh, there, the industry isn't quite like those old Warner Brothers cartoons when the guy runs off the cliff and they play bongo music <laughs> until he figures out that he's about to drop. Right. Uh, we're not there yet. I'm not saying that. But uh -huh. uh, when you look at uh, Jeter paying $1.2 for the Marlins, uh, there's a lot of revenue in there that hasn't been made yet. And I don't think the answer to the question, how do you make it, has been answered, has been solved. Hmm. I mean, that's interesting, Ev. I mean, because we've seen, you know, there was a time when Bud Selig would go around to the editorial boards of the newspapers located in major league cities and cry broke right um back right. in the early 2000s and you know um contraction you know uh, many people may remember the idea of getting rid of two or more teams uh that baseball was espousing um but since you know th there's been a change right i mean now uh the the latest figures i saw was baseball was at 10 billion dollars um as an industry um, and so there's been some real growth, but you, you seem to think that there are some concerns on, on the horizon. Well, I, I, I worry about where franchise prices are, but, um, let me speak to that. In fact, that was kind of a, uh, that was a bad period, uh, the late nineties, early two thousands baseball was losing money and, uh, the losses were driven by the fact that you had four clubs. Uh, you had uh, Toronto and Rogers Media, Atlanta and Time Warner, and uh, the Yankees, and uh, who else was in this bag then? The Dodgers, which were owned uh, by Fox. Uh, you also had Disney in there. 
And those media clubs, those clubs that were owned by media companies, were out putting together big contracts that the rest of the industry couldn't afford. The industry was losing money in 2000 and 2001, but over 80% of the losses were experienced by clubs that were owned by media companies who thought, you know, I don't care if the Braves lose money. And the Braves were one of the highest salary teams back then. Remember, we're talking about the Glavin Maddox Smaltz teams, right? Uh, Who cares if they lose money? We're making it up on the Time Warner side. Uh, And that was a lot of the problem. Uh, The problem solved itself partly because the market for players softened starting in 2003, and partly because some of those uh, media companies got out, like Fox and Disney, they, you know, we don't need to own this. We can contract it, right? And, and uh, that led to a new period of growth and, uh, and profitability when the industry started growing during the economic boom of the first decade uh, the new century. Now, uh, the industry is back to losing money, and I believe that on a cash basis, it is losing some money, uh, but you don't hear any whining about it, and you don't hear whining about it first because the asset value has skyrocketed, just skyrocketed. All of baseball was worth around $16, 15000000000 billion less than 10 years ago. And now it's worth around $45 billion. Uh-huh. Uh, and perhaps more telling is that the industry was worth around two, two and a half times its revenue less than 10 years ago. And now it's worth five times its revenue. And that ratio, that multiple that establishes the value of franchises is going up only because sentiment is changing. Nothing underlying it is changing. But people look at baseball and they think with the Internet and so on, there must be a pony in there. Hmm. So help, help me understand and maybe even others understand, how can you have that kind of a calculus, right? Where you said the industry may be losing money, and, and but yet the asset or the franchise values are increasing. And, it, and to the extent that you can have that kind of dynamic, what is the concern, if any, with that kind of a mixture? Well, look, uh, there's a... Uh... There's an expectation throughout sports that uh, the the internet and internet inter- based entertainment uh, and the like uh, are going to bring new sources of revenue to the industry, uh, new opportunities, uh, but we're not exactly sure what they are yet. Uh, and that, I think, is a lot of uh, the thinking behind uh, these increases in value. Uh, the sources of revenue 
that uh, franchises receive in sports have not changed that dramatically. Uh, you've got gate and gate-related revenue. You've got advertising and promotion. That has increased somewhat, partly because baseball is one of the remaining places to reach a mass market, uh, either nationally or regionally. And then you've got uh, television. Uh, and that's where I think People expect to see Internet distribution uh, move the industry ahead. But right now, uh, all sports to some extent, uh, to all sports to some common great extent, are, uh, depend on the cable distribution model, which is that uh, cable companies will put together a big bundle of content and sell it to the household. And even though there's some content that everybody doesn't want, the cable company's buying power makes it all cheap. I think that part is true. Right? But there's going to be a point uh, where the Internet makes cable evolve as a way to watch sports, and that is, that's still up in the air. And how that works out has a lot to say with whether or not franchise values can be sustained. Right. But we're seeing some of that now, though, right? I mean, in terms of, you know, especially with the younger generation that doesn't sit in front of a television set and doesn't feel the need to have the large cable bundle, you know, the cutting the cord and and those types of things, uh, the downloading and the streaming. Um, that, again, the 20-somethings, 30-somethings, you know, are more apt to do than, you know, my age and your age, uh, perhaps. Um, so we're seeing some of that now, aren't we, where, um, you know, but what you're saying is we, there's an expectation of growth in that area and continued growth, but we don't, maybe it's not realized and we don't know where it is, but that expectation uh, is is sort of driving things here uh, going forward? Well, the cord, let's start with the cord cutting because that really is the, that's the nose of the camel coming into the tent. Uh, what happens when the millennial generation uh, that is getting used to cord cutting, that gave up their landline, Right. And uh, it's entirely possible give up uh, their cable and simply stream entertainment, right? Including stuff like watching a ball game on a phone, which I just don't understand at all. <laughs> right, but right. there you go. Um, what happens then? That remains to be seen. There's some interesting stuff that goes on. Uh, for example, Steve Ballmer, the president of Microsoft. Uh, the once was president of Microsoft mm -hmm. who bought the Clippers in the NBA uh, and had 20 odd billion dollars and decided it would be fun to spend two of them on a franchise. Uh, he's coming up with a lot of interesting things about how internet based viewing can allow you as the consumer to change the way you're looking at play while it's underway to move the camera perspective, to adopt 
different ways of looking at the game to treat it with color or effects and so on. Well, that's yeah, that's possible, but uh, it it all remains to be seen. It well could be that uh, in ten years the model is that for two hundred and fifty bucks you buy your club's uh, baseball games on the internet. And Mm. that's how it works. It's not a matter of uh, getting a cable package, but you know, that's all of that sort of up in the air. Uh, A a very distant second in this race is the question of international. Uh, But uh, baseball has done a particularly bad job on international, uh, it, it really doesn't seem to have a plan, and uh, I think that's more important for other franchises. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things uh, when we, when we talk about, you know, as you were just describing, it's sort of the future, and, and no one really knows where it's going. We have this expectation and all that. I I, I tend to think this is what's going on in esports for example right that there's this expectation that there's money to be made there many people don't want to be left out of the possibility of cashing in and so a lot of people get in but they really aren't quite sure what they're getting into and maybe i just don't understand it or maybe i'm oversimplifying it but i sort of see that as you know sort of part and parcel of what you were talking about here with the internet and where, you know, major sports industry believes uh, the economics are going. What do you think about that? Uh, well, look, if, first, the esports thing, uh, maybe if we have a free week, you can explain to me the attraction of that. <laughs> I don't get it. Uh, but that, uh, you know that's the, the the market is like the heart. It wants what it wants. <laughs> you can't right. second get it because it's going to do what it's going to do that way. Um, during the uh, run up to the financial meltdown in two thousand eight, uh, the chairman of Citibank, a guy named Prince, made the rem- not <laughs> the musician. Um, made the remark that it was crazy, but as long as the music was playing, you got to keep dancing. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly, I think, what you're talking about there, that the music is playing and there are folks who want in, right? They've, uh, they've got the resources, they can raise the cash, they think that they might be able to solve the problem, uh, and so they want to play. Now, um, it's becoming an expensive ticket, right? Which is, uh, you know, which is going to be in some sense uh, where the discipline comes somewhere down the line, right? But we see no signs of it yet. If you're buying a major sports franchise, uh, what you're buying is an entertainment product that is fairly well positioned, that has some room on the price point, 
for tickets and perhaps for uh, cable-type media that has this glimmering horizon of broadband streaming distribution and other stuff, right? And you've got to assign some kind of value for to that. Uh, and, you know, that's, uh, that's the calculus that's being made. I find it surprising. Is it, mm. is it sustainable? Uh, as John Maynard Keynes once said, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, right. Or as they say on Wall Street, trees don't grow to the sky. Yeah. Right? Everything at some point reaches a limit, but that's not, that's not a helpful maxim because that's like saying it's going to get dark tonight between 3 and 11. Right. <laughs> it doesn't right. tell you what's about to go on, you know? Um, right. there's, there are no signs of that uh, right now. Just look at the numbers and watch carefully uh, because that ultimately is the uh, greatest indicator of the health of a sports industry or really any industry, the willingness of capital to enter the industry. Mm-hmm. And right now, there are still many more potential entrants than there are people who want out. And right. you, can, you can see this movie run in reverse. Um, in, uh, in the same decade that baseball was growing, 03 to 08, uh, hockey was in terrible shape, and there were hockey clubs, hockey owners, who were throwing their keys on the table in front of Bettman and saying, the hell with this, I'm out. I'm just not going to do this anymore. And he spent uh, the better part of a bunch of years running around trying to find owners for the franchises that he placed in places where hockey is not a natural thing, right. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Dallas and Florida and so on. Right. There was a famous remark by a guy in the Nashville Current, I think the name of the paper is, that hockey is ice golf played by foreigners from Kanukistan. <laughs> and, um, you know, and Gary... Uh, became commissioner because his program was we must become a national sport to get national TV money and he then put hockey into places you know where where the soil didn't fit and right. in some places it's worked because a guy who's got some visionary ability like Vinick in Tampa has turned the lightning into a real thing down there and in some places, it's just foundered completely. So it's you know it's possible to get there, but that's what you have to watch. As long as the people with capital want to enter are lined up outside the door, and in baseball, I think they certainly are, uh, then there's smooth sailing ahead. But these underlying questions, and I'm not saying that... Uh, it's going to end up failing. I'm saying mm-hmm. that uh, the way in which they'll be answered, particularly how we manage the transition from the cable aggregator of content model 
to streaming, right, to the Trumpian 400-pound guy laying on his bed somewhere. Right. Uh, right. Um, we're, we're looking to see signals somewhere that someone has really thought this out. Right. Are, are there any concerns um, as we sort of move away from that cable aggregation model that you talked about to streaming and other things? And I know there's been some talk about, you know, how virtual reality may factor in here as well. But, you know, if, as we get into the technology and the streaming and and all these other types of things, um are there any concerns from a player side? Because you worked on a player side of what that means for players. Um, because, you know, especially in a sports where you have caps, right, where you have defined revenue. And I don't know if you're, because I know you've done work in hockey. Would yeah. Would these new forms of revenue fit in with some of the current models or is that something that the union has to make sure that they stay abreast of and negotiate into their agreements? Well, boy, you have, uh, you've stepped on a mine. Um, this is an open question. Let's, uh, let me fall back one step. Football ever since Pete Rozelle shares all of its revenue from television, from media, equally. And um, that means that something like three-quarters of the revenue that comes into a franchise comes from these central sources, and it's divided evenly among the group. Baseball central revenue is the national TV contract, but the national TV contract is trivial compared to, well, trivial is a hard word, but it, it, mm. it's not dominant the way the right. local TV deal is. So in baseball, only 25% of the revenue is centralized. And that goes to the heart of the model that has driven baseball players, the players' union, from day one. That is, and, and this is an interesting thing about sports unions generally, they are the only unions whose radical demand is a free market. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's right. pretty wild, right. isn't it? Right, and it is. When you, as as uh, Marvin Miller uh, used to say, and as Don Fear used to say, uh, that uh, every sports negotiation is the clubs coming to the players and saying, we're terrible business people who make terrible decisions. Right. You need to protect us from ourselves. Right. Um, and it's, you know, in this kind of phony proto-socialist nonsense of theirs, uh, that's, I mean, that's what you got to watch out for. In baseball, the players have successfully resisted all attempts to change that model no matter what the criticisms uh, have been, uh, they've got a, a perfect history of keeping that model intact. Uh, so right now, if you're a club in baseball and you want to uh, stream your games and give them to, you know, send them out to your market, right? You've got to get the permission of baseball. Now, baseball has been signing some master agreements with companies like Fox and Comcast 
that run between them almost all, most of the regional sports networks that put baseball on cable. Uh, but baseball has reserved its right, and this started under Selig, uh, this is like going back 15 years, uh, to control internet distribution. And I think that part of that was because uh, the clubs back then, talking about like, you know, the 2000 to 2005 period, looked at this internet thing and thought, ah, geez, if, if Steinbrenner and the Dodgers, you know, and the Cubs get ahead of us on this, this internet stuff, the, the inequities or the, you know, the unequal distribution of revenue between rich and poor clubs is going to get worse. So let's put a break on that. Now the situation is different. Um, the union has told uh, baseball, I don't know if it's any, I don't think it's a secret, that it's watching that with great interest. And we have heard some club owners say that it's time to change the model. Mm. So there's a question about where it's going. But, uh, you know, you look at, for example, what we were talking about earlier about uh, what the Clippers are doing uh, with interesting Internet approaches to televising or distributing games. It's not happening in baseball. There's nothing really interesting going on there. Uh, and I think that the industry's growth would be a lot better, a lot stronger, if uh, Internet rights were unambiguously given to the clubs and they were told, go knock yourself out, negotiate mm -hmm. a deal with your cable company, or, for example, uh, Seattle, the... the uh, Stanton, the uh, technology executive who just bought the Mariners, also controls 80% of Root Sports, his cable company. He's in a perfect position to say, all right, this is how we're going to do it from now on, particularly right. in Seattle, which is a millennial high-tech community where they get more people showing up for soccer games than they do for baseball games most of the time. Right. Right. Uh, I I hope, and to a lesser extent, I predict that at some point, baseball ownership is going to say that the transition from cable to the internet is too important to be left to Rob Manfred and the guys who work over on Park Avenue in Manhattan. Let let us, the club owners, decide how that's going to work. That is a Rubicon that one day is going to have to be crossed. Yeah. That would be interesting because, um, you know, there was a time, you know, I, I remember Ed, when I started and, you know, every club had control over their website, right? I mean, this is, this was shortly after Al Gore invented the internet, right? So every, every club had uh, had control over their website and it was a mess. I mean, there were some clubs that were doing a great job and other clubs were doing a terrible job. Um, is there any danger with doing that? I mean, certainly there's some upside, right. Of allowing clubs to, you know, 
um, you know, be creative and and to go out and do some things and maybe drive the market. Um, but do you think that from baseball's perspective, they think that there's too much of a downside, so they're going to want to always centrally control it? Well, I think that the desire for central control doesn't come out of the same, you know, engine that uh, what we're talking about 15 years ago. That the um, standardizing the websites and uh, using central baseball to help the guys who are not up to speed uh, is one thing. Uh, controlling how they deploy a major and growing source of revenue is something else completely. Uh, right now, the impetus for uh, keeping the internet centralized uh, comes from a couple of sources. First, you've got an established bureaucracy within MLB, you know, that uh, BAM, right, Baseball mm-hmm. Advanced Media, that is out there doing well. I mean, they're they're doing very well, sure. producing sure. revenue, improving their institutional clout, right? So that's there, and uh, you've got low end clubs who think I'm I'm better off just letting this happen. Uh, you know, you look at um, you look at a market like Milwaukee or Pittsburgh which are very small compared to a lot of the major and mid-sized markets. And they're thinking, uh, I'm making twenty-five, thirty on cable. The Yankees and Phillies are making 125 So maybe I'll be happy if we do, if we kind of socialize internet access. Uh, but the way to deal with that is through revenue sharing uh, and through redistribution within the industry, which has its own problems. Uh, But otherwise, it becomes a textbook example of of an age-old economic problem, and that is the folks who are the losers because of economic growth and change try to obstruct economic Mm. growth and change because right. that's the only hammer they have in search of their nail. It's the same stuff as Trump telling coal miners they're going to get their jobs back, or somehow that uh, tariffs on Chinese steel and aluminum are going to bring back those jobs. They're mm-hmm. not. It's too late for that. And in fact, they disappeared not because of trade, but because technology made the workers so productive that you needed a very small number of them compared to where we were 50, 60 years ago. Right. Uh, so there's an age-old economic story. The losers hold up the process. They put sand in the gears. Like the sabots of the 18th century, they throw their wooden shoes into the looms mm. to break them, right? Where we got the word sabotage. It's an economic word. Um, the economist said proudly. Uh, so there's a there's a real governance issue for baseball, right? Uh, and it's a it requires uh, a very strong commissioner. I don't think baseball has that. 
and it requires a dialogue among the owners uh, that's conducted among serious, thoughtful people. That uh, There are serious and thoughtful people among ownership, mm-hmm. uh, but they're, I mean, they're so divergent. The only thing baseball owners have in common is their owners. Otherwise, they come from different corners of the universe in many ways. You know, you got hedge fund managers and beer distributors, mm-hmm. uh, and they can talk numbers, but that doesn't mean they're talking a common language. So, yeah, that's an issue. That's a problem. Uh, and I think all eyes in the industry are on that space to see what happens there. Because it goes to whether or not franchise prices are bubbling, right? Whether or not clubs are going to control their own futures online, right? Uh-huh. What the new model is going to be. All roads lead to that one point. Man, that was just part one of our interview with economist Ev Ehrlich. I encourage you to come on back for part two as Ev continues to share his knowledge and insight on the sports industry and the economics that drive the game. As always, share your thoughts with us. Let us know how we're doing. We promise to keep taking it to new levels. Until next time, we gotta go. Scully is waiting in the wings to take us home. But we look forward to seeing you again on the next edition of Sports 360. Thank you.